Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay. I welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Clint, and Sam. And then, Clint is the guest. I talked to Clint about his dissertation and the research that he did. I learned so much. And my message for this week is don't be afraid to ask for help. I started therapy a week ago, and it was great. And one of the things that I said to the therapist was, you know, I actually know a lot of the things that are holding me back. I don't alone have the tools to undo them or to get out of the holes. I can see the self-sabotage. I can see the way that I'm beholden to a certain set of opinions or critiques or whatever. And I don't have the tools right now to undo the negative impacts of those things. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Even the best players have coaches. I'm reminded. Let's go. What's up, y'all? It's the news. Brittany is not here with us today, but this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. This is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Dre at DRY on Twitter. Dr. Clint Smith, congrats. Woo-hoo. Appreciate y'all, man. It's been a wild ride. Clint is the uh, is the interview on this week's pod, so we won't talk much about the doctorness. But Doctor Dad, as uh, Twitter called him, and Doctor Clint Smith the Third, I I I is in the building. So you know we are all spending a lot of time inside, indoors, in front of TVs, in front of screens, in front of our phones, and there's a lot more Instagram scrolling that's going on and. A lot of times I'll scroll through Instagram and the first like 17 stories are not actually stories. They're Instagram lives. And it's been fun and wild and fascinating to observe all the different types of Instagram lives that are going on. You got DJs out here who are throwing like all night Instagram DJ parties, authors, you know, who are reading their work. I I read my work for my first book because I've had a lot of teachers and educators reach out to ask if I can do Zoom calls with their class. And I got a two toddlers, so I can't, but I could get on Instagram Live and, and do a reading and Q&A. And I did that last week, and it was really great. And I know a lot of other writers have been doing similar things. Uh, but there was one Instagram Live in particular, DeRay, that I know you tuned into. I didn't get a chance to see it. I've just seen the memes after from from two of our musical legends, though the uh, moment did not seem to turn out as legendary as as we might have hoped. I will say, Clint, you, I tuned into your Instagram Live first and uh i'd never been to a poetry reading on the internet and it was sort of fascinating because in the comments the people were so hype y'all they were like i know that poem i know that poem oh what do you know because he like (laughs) he would sort of do this little intro to the poem but he wouldn't always say the title so he'd start reading and then the comments would be like that's my poem that's my poem and it was like wow this is like so fun to see virtually yeah it was fun were you could you see our comment were you paying attention to our comments i could see a little bit um you know you can't pay too much it scrolls by pretty quickly and you can't pay too much attention to it when you're also trying to read but i saw people pop in there you know my mom popped in there my sister the homies um, my cousins, you know, it was, it was fun. It was like a fun having defended on Monday and then did this on Thursday. It was like, it was cool. It's a cool way to engage with folks and, and to just, you know, people are stuck at home and we can't go to bookstores for, for readings and events. And 
um, to the extent that writers and authors can bring that to folks who are stuck inside, I think is a good thing. So it was fun. So Teddy Riley and Babyface uh, were going to have their verses, their battle. And we all, five, 400,000 of us are on Instagram Live ready for the battle. And then you're like, why Teddy Riley got this big mic? You're like, okay, what's going on? He got a whole stage set up. This is a like, turn your phone on and just play the music. And then like 20 minutes in, you realize like he has a horrible echo. You're like, Babyface is in there realizing he's on camera. So try not to be too annoyed. Teddy's making it sound like it's Babyface's fault. But the best was the comments. Somebody said it perfectly. We need the transcript. We need Instagram to release the transcript from that Instagram live because Adele was like, it's 2020. We not meant to get what we uh, want in 2020, it seems. Tony Braxton going in. Mariah Carey made jokes being like, oh, I thought I was the only one with this kind of feedback when I sing and stuff like that. So it was amazing to watch. And I'll tell you, like the memes and stuff that Black Twitter put out in the world immediately, you're like, that was impressive. This was a That was a good night for solidarity but it's such a missed opportunity for Babyface and Teddy Riley. Folks who don't know, I think most people know who Babyface is, but if you don't know who Teddy Riley is, he was in the group Blackstreet. Um, and so if you know the song No Diggity, that's Teddy Riley and his crew. I missed that yesterday, although I definitely saw all the memes and everything about it. My favorite event so far on Instagram Live has been the battle between Lil Jon and T-Pain. I heard about that. I didn't even realize in going through this whole battle, you hear track after track after track, hit after hit after hit. And I hadn't fully appreciated the extent to which those two carried like my entire like middle school, high school vibe. Just between those two and all of the features, all the collaborations during that era, you know, I, I hadn't fully appreciated like how many of those hits were attributed to Lil Jon and T-Pain. So that was incredible. I don't know if anybody officially won, but I really think they both won just in the fact that they displayed the full repertoire of hits and like characterized the whole era of like Crunk and the South and everything that like I grew up on, which was dope. Honestly, the wildest part of all of it was when I realized that T-Pain is only 34 years old. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. Because like you, this man's music shaped and animated my entire like late high school, college. I mean, he was popping, but I remember as a senior in high school. So this was 2005, 2006, which was his first big single. And it's like 15 years ago. So I was like, wait, T-Pain was 20 years old. He did not look 20 years old in 2005. And so I definitely thought T-Pain was in his 30s when he came out. And I was like, oh, T-Pain's like an old head. He, I thought he was in his 50s. But this man is <laughs> just three years older than me. Also, shout out T-Pain for having such a wide and large discography for somebody so young. It's like so many hits for so many years. And he hasn't even really put out much music in the last few years. So he had like a, a decade where he was just on it. So shout out T-Pain. Lil John too. And now it's the news. So for my news, I want to talk about uh, how physical distancing has shaped the relationship between uh, what we're experiencing with coronavirus and the climate. Uh, so since physical distancing has started around the world, there's been a sharp reduction documented in carbon emissions and air pollution that have been caused by these coronavirus-related lockdowns across the world, right? And it's offered, some argue, a sort of preview of the kind of improvements that can be made when drastic action is taken to protect the climate and the environment. 
in these sort of precarious years that we've been told, you know, we only have a few years until we can prevent the sort of climate change that is irreversible in ways that will be profoundly detrimental to this planet, even beyond what has been happening now. And that's because many of the behaviors people have given up, like driving to work every day, taking long international flights, these are extremely carbon intensive. And now that folks aren't doing them, we're seeing improvements in the air quality and water quality across the world. In 2008, for example, air travel accounted for 2.4% of global carbon dioxide emissions for fossil fuel use. Uh, one study estimated that in the first week of April, there were 60% fewer flights compared to the same time last year. New data from NASA showed that nitrogen dioxide levels were about 30% below their average in March in the busy urban metropolises of the East Coast. Uh, an estimate out of China, which is the world's biggest polluter, showed that it emitted 25% less carbon than the same period of time the previous year. And per an analysis from the organization Carbon Brief, the virus might lead to climate warming greenhouse gas emissions dropping 4% in 2020 as a whole compared to last year. So you read all of that stuff and you're like, oh, this is great. Like this is the sort of silver lining. This is a time where we can sort of cut back on all the damage that we've done. But these changes could easily be wiped out by efforts to quickly ramp up economies that we're already seeing across the world, including governments around the globe that may be more willing to relax regulations to jumpstart certain companies who have been in this sort of coma since we started. Last week, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency confirmed that the Trump administration had relaxed enforcement of regulations to help these really polluting heavy industries deal with the pandemic. Some environmental experts are calling it basically a license to pollute. Uh, plastic bag restrictions have been lifted across the country. In New York and Maine, which had recently introduced bans, those bans have been delayed. In Connecticut, plastic bag fees have been removed. In New Hampshire, uh, the governor prohibited shoppers from bringing reusable bags and ordered stores to make disposable bags available, which again is one of those things that we understand. We don't want people bringing in bags that might be contaminated with the virus, but the impact of having all of this plastic be produced and being used has potentially huge consequences for the planet. Likewise, the crisis has been a boon for the auto industry with Trump administration seizing the moment to fulfill a campaign promise to weaken Obama-era emission standards. Automakers in the EU are also lobbying for a delay in tightening emissions restrictions because of the crisis. And in China, plans for tougher standards look likely to be delayed to help struggling automakers. There are some glimmers of hope that the ambitious climate change action could play a part um, and that a lot of the momentum that had been created earlier this year and last year might continue. European Union leaders said that they recently announced a green deal must be at the heart of any, quote, intelligent recovery. In spite of pressure to soften its green ambitions because of the pandemic, the EU has begun a consultation on tightening the carbon reduction targets that they are aiming for by 2030. So all this is to say a lot remains to be seen. You know, if we ramp up and if all of the regulation, environmental regulation is pulled from these companies in an effort to, quote, jumpstart the economy, then we risk sort of losing any semblance of progress that has been made by this coma that the industries that are so often our, our greatest polluters have been put into. So, Clint, this news that you've shared really puts into perspective just the scale of work that will need to be done in order to adequately address the crisis of climate change moving forward. You know, you mentioned that there was a 30% reduction in nitrogen dioxide levels compared to March so far in the U.S. 
Uh, Similarly, we've seen a 4% reduction projected in overall climate warming greenhouse gas emissions for this year compared to last year. And that 4% reduction is actually only two-thirds of the way towards meeting our projected target for being able to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So in order to meet the targets that scientists have set to prevent an all-out catastrophe with regard to global warming, we'll actually have to go even further than we're going now in the context of a pandemic towards reducing emissions. And just to put into context all that's happening right now, 92% of U.S. adults report practicing social distancing, 82% report sheltering in place. So almost everybody is social distancing and sheltering in place, not traveling as much, not contributing as much to greenhouse gas emissions. Airline travel is down 60%. Of course, airlines are a huge contributor to emissions. And even still, we still need to go even further uh, to achieve the target for only increasing global temperatures by 1.5 degrees Celsius. So not keeping them at what they were, but actually preventing them from increasing further. So it will be a monumental challenge to achieve that. I'm hopeful that the global coordination that we're currently seeing, not only you know in the US with so many people practicing social distancing and sheltering in place, but frankly, even more so in other countries, uh, has given me hope that we can actually collectively mobilize to address climate change after we've sort of dealt with the coronavirus outbreak. Um, but again, you know, there's this risk of backlash in the interests of, quote unquote, opening up the economy, doubling down on the types of industries that actually got us into this place. Uh, So this is sobering. It is also an indicator that it is entirely possible for us to maintain the progress that is actually being made by people all across the world in reducing emissions, reducing travel, and building on that moving forward so that we can actually protect the planet from an impending crisis with regard to climate change. Uh, When people work in concert, we can actually do beautiful things uh, for communities and for the environment. That was a reminder to me. So it's been wild to see. I don't know if you, this morning I actually woke up on Twitter and I saw turkeys. It was like turkeys are just like roaming in somebody's neighborhood. Like they're just like out in the front yard, just like doing what they're doing. I don't know if you've seen that video of the squirrels who overtook a park. Like the squirrels are just like out playing in parks, like chilling, sunbathing because they could for the first time. This also made me think about environmental racism and some things that we've talked about on on way past episodes. But we know that when we think about things like air quality, disproportionately uh, people of color are victims and poor people are victims. There's a study that came out in 2019 in August uh, by Ohio State University. And one of the things that they find is that for every 1% increase in low-income African-Americans living in an area, the odds that an area will become a hotspot of air pollution grew significantly. They also continue to say that this was also true, but to a lesser extent, for increases in low-income white populations. That we see the way that air pollution and air quality are directly linked to income and race, And then we covered a long time ago when it came out, the study that showed that white people produce more air pollution than black people, but black people are disproportionately victims of the air pollution. So to remind you, what this study notes, after accounting for population size differences, is that whites experience about 17% less air pollution than they produce through consumption, while blacks and Hispanics bear 56 and 63% more air pollution, respectively, than they cause by their consumption. So it's a reminder that in these moments, one of the unintended 
consequences in a good way is that the air is just cleaner in so many communities than it's probably ever been for a really long time. You think about the history of redlining, it's like this country intentionally built Black people's houses near plants, near factories, near train tracks. Like we did that. And the consequence of that is actually pretty huge. It'll be interesting to see the studies that come out after this time of quarantine that try and map some of the health impacts outside of the virus itself. But like, how quickly did the air recover? Is it going to go back steadily or is it going to go back rapidly? Or is it going to go back in a slow pace? Like, I'm interested to see how we continue to think about air pollution, given that we probably won't be in really big crowds for a long time. You think about like what the end of concerts for the rest of the year might do to the environment sort of resetting itself or the end of sports games, you know, like what that looks like. So I'm interested to keep this air pollution conversation in our mind. Don't go anywhere. More Podcast the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m., at all hours of the day, really. 
What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. So you may have heard about the $1,200, and many of you listening to this pod may have received your $1,200 uh, stimulus check. Again, a lot of folks still haven't received their checks. Uh, many of those folks are lower income earners uh, and folks who have been left out of the program. However, there is a provision that many people have not heard of that was tucked into this Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, otherwise known as the CARES Act, uh, which overwhelmingly benefits wealthy people. So while everyday people get $1,200 usually from this legislation, this provision that's tucked into this bill that suspends a limitation on how much owners of businesses that are called pass-through entities can deduct this single provision, which allows them to deduct far more than they previously were able to against their income for the purposes of taxation, allows 43,000 taxpayers, people who earn more than a million dollars a year, to each receive an average of $1.7 million thanks to this provision in the CARES Act. So again, this is a huge giveaway to the wealthiest Americans. It's something that got absolutely no coverage or scrutiny during the crafting and passage of this legislation. The total cost of this one provision that benefits these 43,000 people, it costs $90 billion to the government. Just to put this in context, that is more money than the total amount of funding for all hospitals in America, more than the total amount provided to all state and local governments in this bill. So again, this is a huge giveaway of money to the wealthiest Americans, over a million dollars on average each uh, per taxpayer. And we are just learning about this now. This is compounding existing inequities within the bill that we've talked about that make it harder for some of the lowest income Americans to actually get their $1,200 aspects of the bill that actually make it uh, harder for Black-owned businesses to receive a forgivable loan from the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, and now, of course, this provision, which gives uh, 42,000 taxpayers over a million dollars each uh, just because they make a whole lot of money and have these pass-through entities. I hope that this will be repealed. I hope it's a bigger part of the broader conversation about what needs to happen in phase three and four of legislation. But it's a reminder that oftentimes the very lawmakers who we hope uh, will pass legislation to help support people who have the highest amount of need very much use those powers to support uh, the people who have the most money and power already and exacerbate existing inequities in America. Yeah, Sam, it's important that you brought this up because... There's so many of these secret provisions in this legislation, and I don't think most folks know about it. And another thing that I'm thinking about in this sort of larger CARES package that has been underwhelming would be putting it generously, but I'm thinking about the Paycheck Protection Program. So lawmakers have allocated about $350 billion to the Paycheck Protection Program known as PPP as part of the $2 trillion stimulus bill that they passed in March. But these funds were not nearly sufficient to meet the demand. As of this past week, or rather last week, banks and lenders had processed more than 1.3 million loans, but as many as 700,000 small businesses and nonprofits are still waiting for the funding. And the program has dealt with delays, access problems, 
And to your point, loopholes that enable larger companies to reap the key benefits while excluding so many of these smaller organizations and mom and pop shops and nonprofits from getting the funding that they need. I know so many people who own small businesses or who are associated with small businesses who are counting on this money and who haven't gotten it, right? And this is like the mom and pop pizza shop down the street. This is the nonprofit that works with uh, victims of domestic violence. This is the organization that tries to get books in the hands of kids who don't have them. I mean, all of the small organizations that need this money to keep people on payroll, that need this money to keep functioning with any semblance of not even normalcy, but just to survive until whatever this is, is, is over. And our government has failed largely because, you know, Republicans are attempting to create these loopholes and secret additions to legislation that essentially puts Democrats and folks in a very difficult position where, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking about this to the New York Times last week, where she was saying, you know, you were in a position where you either had to vote for this slush fund that the Republicans had created, or you wouldn't be able to get the unemployment benefits to people who needed them. You wouldn't be able to get the checks to people who needed them. And so it's, you know, it's par for the course of how this party works in that they put corporate giveaways and tax cuts and benefits for huge corporations into legislation and tie it to the parts of the legislation necessary for the most vulnerable communities. So hopefully, you know, Democrats and Republicans are in a kind of stalemate right now about how to move forward next because Democrats want to make sure that additional money is going to hospitals and states. They want to make sure that they're giving money to uh, healthcare providers and SNAP programs, and that they are making sure that a lot of these small businesses that need assistance, that these initiatives are specifically targeting women, that they're targeting communities of color, that they're targeting people who wouldn't have traditional access to a lot of the funds that are now being made available. So, uh, so we will see. You know, we're hopeful that the people who need this money will get it, and that people who you know need the money to keep people employed in these small businesses and that, you know, we're protecting folks who need the protection the most. Last episode, I talked about my experience with the Small Business Administration trying to help out the small business owner down the street a couple of weeks ago. The only thing I have to say now is, and I know there are a lot of people in Congress, Lord knows there are a lot of staff members, and there are a lot of incredible people working very hard. I need to learn more about how these provisions keep getting snuck in and we find out way late. So, you know, not even this provision, but I think about the First Step Act. You know, the First Step Act gets passed, and then we realize that almost a third of the people get deported immediately. And I talked to a couple of members of Congress who were like, oh, we didn't know. And you're like, well, I don't know where the disconnect is, but it still is shocking. It's shocking that, like, I get what you said about AOC being like you're stuck in a hard place about how to vote for it. But it's like weird that there's like not even a reporter who reports on it, especially because we know this set of Republicans is all about doing this. Like this isn't even like a, it's not like we like love the people on the other side and we're like, wow, I can't believe they did us dirty. It's like these people are the goal is to do us dirty. So like, I don't know what we need to figure out to put in process as like a process mechanism, but it is like the Republicans have done this time and time again. And some things we catch. In some things we don't, but it's like there seem to be enough people, like physical bodies who are smart on our side that we should at least be able to like know about these things before the legislation passes. And that's what I still don't get. Like I'm still at a loss for how something like this happens and we find out in like a random Forbes article a week and a half later. Like that feels like a process fail. My news is about a policing commission. So you all know that Brittany was appointed by President Obama on the task force on 21st century policing. This task force made a lot of important recommendations 
around how police departments should think about changing policing. You know, we supported the commission. We didn't always agree with the Obama administration on a whole lot of things, but this is one that like largely we agree with them on. And we pushed them a lot because they were going to tee these recommendations off to Hillary and then Hillary as president was going to act on a lot of them. And that was a good thing. So Trump very quietly announced a White House Commission on Policing a while ago. It was established uh, on October 28th, 2019 through an executive order, but nothing really happened with it. Like nobody got appointed. It was a thing that we saw, but like nothing happened. And when Trump became president, he immediately took down all the old commission stuff. Like the report is gone from the website. You can't really see that Obama even commissioned it. If you look at the government pages, like it's a wrap. And then uh, he finally appointed people, and it is scary. So of the 18 people appointed to the commission, 17 are active members of law enforcement agencies, prosecutors, and judges. And one is a city councilman from McKinney, Texas. Uh, If you remember, McKinney, Texas is where the young woman was assaulted by police officers outside of the pool. And what's sort of wild is that you don't see any public health experts on it. You don't see any victims' rights people. There are no activists. There are no uh, lawyers who advocate for victims. There are no nonprofit leaders. Like, this is literally a command and control commission that I don't even, I can't even anticipate what, quote, reforms are going to come out of this. You know, even though we know things like community policing don't have the impact that they want, and we know the limitations of body cameras, and we know all the things that we sort of criticize the Obama commission for highlighting as solutions on their own, this group of people, I can only imagine that they will put forth a really intense rollback. You know, I just wanted to bring it here because this is one of the things that like isn't really uh, being talked about and isn't really front of mind for people. But this commission, their report is going to come out after the virus, but probably before the election. And it could have an impact on the way that policing is shaped across the country, which is frightening. So, you know, this is obviously and sort of blatantly a backlash against what the Obama administration did. You know, they've repealed everything that the Obama administration was trying to do with regards to policing and police reform, created their own commission, and under Attorney General Barr, uh, it's pretty clear that he's stacked the deck so that these will be among the worst offenders in the entire sort of space of police chiefs and police leadership in this country, folks who represent some of the departments that have the highest rates of police violence, departments that have had very high profile incidents of police misconduct and police violence. What I think I am hopeful for is, you know, again, they're supposed to put out a report by late October, which is right before the election. I actually wouldn't be surprised if they were not able to do that in time just because of all that's happening right now in this country with coronavirus. I actually like would be surprised if they had time to put out anything and whether it actually got any traction at all, which I think would maybe be the silver lining here would be that they wasted all their time. But if they do put out this report and it does influence policing, particularly for police departments that are sort of more rural, uh, police departments that have resisted any type of reform, any type of change over the past six years, this will sort of be those police departments blueprint for how to continue to double down on the practices and policies that have disproportionately killed black and brown people that have uh, resulted in 
large scale and high profile incidents and patterns and practices of misconduct. And that is just like the doubling down that we've seen from this administration from day one. You know, Trump likes to style himself as a criminal justice reformer. And as we know, you know, his record is exactly the opposite. Um, not only suspending the use of pattern and practice investigations and consent decrees that have been shown to reduce police shootings by about 20%, suspended those, continues to cut you know, funding and support for the types of changes that actually have a track record of addressing issues like police violence, reducing police shootings, reducing racial disparities in policing. Like these are things that the President Obama's task force on 21st century policing like studied in depth, talked to the experts, talked to community leaders, talked to nonprofit leaders, talked to researchers, and actually put out a, a fairly good blueprint that had some policies in there that can really make a difference. And we've seen police departments begin to adopt those in some places, particularly in large cities. In the larger cities that have begun to implement these types of reforms, we've actually seen reductions in police shootings of about 30% in the largest 30 cities in the country. So again, there are some things that police departments have started to do that have actually made progress towards reducing police violence. What this commission represents is a backlash against that and an attempt to actually roll back any of that progress and double down on the efforts that have actually gotten us to this place. So just to give people a better sense of who these folks are on this commission, uh, more specifically, uh, one of the people Barr appointed was a, a woman named Gina Hawkins, who was the chief of police in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And activists have been calling for her resignation or firing since 2018 uh, in Fayetteville when members of the community alleged that police planted evidence to arrest a couple on drug charges, which we know is uh, something that we've seen in multiple departments across the country recently and for a long time. Uh, she was also a delegate in the 23rd Georgia International Law Enforcement Exchange, which is an Islamophobic and unabashedly Zionist law enforcement training program and partnership with Israel in which police traveled to the country to study its infamously racist and militarized police force and how they engage with the Palestinians. Uh, there's also Craig Price, who is the secretary of the South Dakota Department of Public Safety, and he was appointed to the commission as well. Price is known to many activists for supervising the South Dakota Highway Patrol, and it is an organization that played a key role in brutally suppressing the Dakota Access Pipeline protests that happened a few years ago. And his department was reimbursed over half a million dollars for its effort to surveil and attack protesters at Standing Rock. So these are the folks who are on this commission. So they're not only just people in law enforcement, they're people who uh, represent some of the most egregious elements of law enforcement. So uh, there's a lot to be concerned about here. And we can't let folks slip these kind of things under the radar while we're all preoccupied with this virus. So just a reminder to stay vigilant. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. 
Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Today's guest is one of our very own Dr. Clint Smith III. Last week, Clint defended his dissertation and earned his doctorate from the Harvard Ed School. We discuss his paper entitled, What If They Open That Door One Day? What Education Means to People Sentenced to Juvenile Life Without Parole. You can't read it just yet, but hopefully it'll be out as a book sooner rather than later. Consider this a sneak peek. Let's go. Dr. Clint Smith Third. Uh, welcome to this side of the podcast. It is exciting to be on the other side. I don't get to uh, experience this one firsthand very often. Now, it is an honor to interview you because obviously you're a podcast family member. Been there from the way back. We've been at it for three years now, which is sort of wild. And oh, three years. Wow. We just, uh, me, Brittany, Sam, were all at your dissertation defense when you became uh, a doctor, which is fun. Are you actually like? Did you get a piece of paper that said doctor? Or is that later? Like, are you at? Can, are you a real doctor now? When you pass your defense, you are officially a doctor, and then everything after that is sort of you know pomp and circumstance, ceremony. Even though we're, you know, obviously, as is the case with the rest of folks graduating this year, in a different set of circumstances, because we're not going to have a graduation, they've told us that it is postponed. That could mean December. That could mean with the 2021 class. I mean, there's so much uncertainty right now. So so who knows? They've told us that we're going to have a, a virtual graduation. So I'll be curious to see what that looks like. But um, But it's all right. You know, I've had graduations and I feel much more for the younger students. You know, it's a very different sort of graduate experience, but I'll get my fancy crimson robe at some point and I'll make sure to stun on the gram for it. Yes, Dr. Dad. Uh, We're here to talk about your dissertation. What if they open that door one day? I'd love to begin by asking how different is it to write this than to do poetry? I think about like just reading through your dissertation and then I think about the Instagram live you did the other day where you were reading poetry and it feels like two very different worlds, but it's the same guy with the same great presentation voice. So how is the writing different? Yeah, I mean, I think the the approach is different, right? So I'm writing my dissertation as a social scientist. And so I'm trained as a sociologist of education, which means that I have certain levels of methodological rigor that I have to abide by, that I have to engage with the literature that is previously engaged with this topic there's a lot of overlap between you know journalism and, and academia. And I think we're increasingly moving toward a point where journalism is engaging the you know content more like academia in the sense that like now you have people who, are, if somebody has written about a topic before, you often like put the link there when you cite them. And so I think in academia, you know, you have to spend a lot of time citing the sources of the folks who have written about this topic or topics adjacent to yours beforehand in your literature review. Uh, your methods have to outline very specifically, like, how did you go about interviewing these people? What was the nature of those interviews? What was the demographic of your interviewees? What was the context in which you were interviewing them? Then you have to do data analysis, and you kind of have to thematically put all of the interviews and, and transcripts in conversation with one another. 
It is not more rigorous than poetry. It is not more rigorous than an essay or, or journalism. It is just a different type of rigor. There's a different sort of structural setup for the dissertation itself. And there's a different expectation about how you engage with both the topic you are writing about and the folks who have written about that beforehand. Got it. The subtitle of the dissertation is What Education Means to People Sentenced to Juvenile Life Without Parole. Can you talk about how you got to study incarcerated populations? Like, why was this a focus? I know that you used to teach, but you taught in a traditional public high school, not in an incarcerated setting when you were a high school teacher. And then why juveniles? Like, when we think about the range of issues you could have focused on that are about incarceration and education, there are a ton of marginalized uh, subsets of communities inside of prisons and jails. How did you get to juvenile life without parole? Yeah, so I so when I applied to graduate school in 2013, I applied with the intention of studying. I had been a high school English teacher in Prince George's County, uh, and I was really interested in critical pedagogy. I spent a lot of time reading Paulo Freire and a lot of the folks who were thinking about what does it mean to help young people understand that the world is a social construction and thus can be reconstructed and deconstructed and made into something new? Uh, and how do you get young people to accept and understand that the conditions of their communities are not inevitabilities, but instead are, are things that have been created and things that it can be recreated and reimagined? You know, so many of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about on the pod. And I went there with the intention of studying what does that look like in the context of a specific classroom and what would that look like at scale to create a scaled version of how to get young people to reimagine the sort of civic, social, and political possibilities of their lives. And I got to grad school in 2014, and I started grad school the same week Mike Brown was killed. And obviously, that was a seminal moment for all of us. For you, you know, you got very involved in Ferguson. It became an intimate part of your life and, and obviously changed the trajectory of your life. I think for me, I, you know, I was sitting in this fancy old, centuries-old library at the moment where... I felt like I was seeing black people being killed at the hands of the state over and over again. And I was really thinking about my own positionality relative to what was happening. And I wasn't in Ferguson and I wasn't in Baltimore. And I wasn't in New York. And I was thinking about what is it, what is my role in this space, in this sort of political, social, and, and increasingly like intellectual movement around the reality of black life in this country. And for me, what that meant was that I wanted to become more proximate to the systems that were being interrogated and examined. And so I started teaching creative writing at a prison in Massachusetts Department of Corrections uh, and continued to teach in Massachusetts for the period of time that I lived there. And I was working with folks who had been sentenced to life without parole. And I started thinking a lot about what does education mean when you are told that you're going to spend the rest of your life in a cage? You know, 95% of people who are incarcerated are ultimately released, but there are about 200,000 people who are serving life sentences or de facto life sentences. And I was becoming more and more interested because I was spending time with folks who were serving these sentences, what education meant to them, like what motivates you to learn, what motivates you to read a poem, what motivates you to learn geometry, what motivates you to, to write an essay, like what are the things that, that cultivate your interest in education? And then I started having conversations with the folks who were sentenced to life without parole when they were kids. And having been a high school teacher, having taught 14, 15, 16-year-olds, I thought about, like, if somebody came and told one of my students that they were going to spend the rest of their life in prison for something that they did when they were 14 or 15 years old, 
it seems so absurd to me, so beyond the pale, so ridiculous. And I started doing more research on it. And I realized that the United States is the only country in the world that formally on the book sentences children to life without the possibility of parole and was the only country in the world until a few years ago that had a mandatory life without parole sentence for children. And so the more time I spent engaging with folks who had experienced this sentence, the more people I started having conversations with in the policy realm who were fighting against this, the more interested in it I became. And so then in 2016, there was a Supreme Court ruling called Montgomery v. Louisiana, which made retroactive a 2012 ruling called uh, Miller v. Alabama. And Miller v. Alabama was the ruling the Supreme Court made in a 5-4 decision that said that mandatory life without parole for children was unconstitutional. And so suddenly, you know, it was really difficult to get inside of a prison and interview people who were sentenced to life without parole as children because, you know, a lot of them were trying to appeal their cases. Their cases had implications for other things. Just the logistics of trying to get somebody's attorney and the Department of Corrections to let you in to interview this person were incredibly difficult. But then after this case, you had over 2,000 people who were having the opportunity to have their cases reviewed with the potential of being released. And so you had this sort of trickle of folks who were coming out of prison And it provided this really amazing opportunity to spend time with people who had been told when they were teenagers that they were going to die in prison and who were now coming out. And so these folks had spent 30, 40, you know, my long oldest participant had spent 50 years in prison. And when that happened, I was like, oh, this is my chance to get a sense of what their experience was like generally, but also specifically what education looked like for them and how they thought about it before they were incarcerated, while they were incarcerated, and now that they're back home. When we say education in prison, what does that mean? Is that like GED? Is that college courses? Is it making up high school courses? Is it like peer mentoring? Is that included in your definition of education? Like what's the scope of like, quote, education that you studied? Yeah. And that's that's kind of what I set out to figure out. And what I found is I kind of have three different manifestations of education, if you will. So there's formal education, which is your uh, GED, your college courses, informal education, which can be the sort of religious communities that are established. It can be the communities that are formed in solitary confinement. So it's sort of paradox of solitary confinement as a space of community. And then independent education, you know, thinking about places like the law library and the law library being this place where people who were once illiterate teach themselves how to read so that they can then learn how to read these legal texts so that they can advocate for their cases. And one of the the biggest findings, I think, of the dissertation is that I think I went in anticipating that, oh, well, education is going to be a place where people build a sense of community. It gives people a sense of purpose. It's this thing that allows people to use their time constructively. And all of those things are true. But I I think before I had these conversations with these men and women, I took for granted the extent to which education was like a very utilitarian tool, right? That there was like a very specific intentionality in taking these classes and that folks were like, I'm going to try to get this GED, or I'm going to take this college course, or I'm going to try to get this degree um, from this university that's offering a degree inside. Now, I'm going to participate in these prison programs and doing it because they have seen time and time again what I call the malleability of the law. And this idea that the law is not a static entity. It is something that changes. It's something that evolves. When you have a new governor come into place, the way they approach commutations could be radically different. When you have a new state Supreme Court come in, the way that they interpret the state constitution could be radically different. When you have a new Supreme Court justice come in, you can have radically different possibilities, right? You know, these folks were people in the 70s, 80s, and 90s who were told they were going to die in prison. 
And then in 2012 and 2016, the Supreme Court, with Anthony Kennedy being the swing vote, ruled that that was torture. Like you couldn't tell a child that they were going to die in prison as a mandatory sentence without taking into account the larger uh, historical, social and contextual lives that they're emerging from. And what that ultimately means is it comes down to hope, right? Like if you have the hope that one day you might be able to get out. Maybe this the governor only commutes five people, you know, in their entire four year term. But you were like, it's still possible for me to be one of those five people. So you got folks who are busting their butt, trying to take as many courses as they can, trying to have the best behavioral record that they can, um, trying to do as much mentorship as they can. And it is not I don't want to misrepresent it and say that people are doing this only so they can get out, because as any educational experiences, you know, you might have a specific set of goals of like, oh, I'm trying to get this degree so I can get this job. But in the process, you build community, you build a broader sense of knowledge, you learn things that help you in different parts of your life. But that is a huge, huge part of it. And a place like the law library, I think, is also a place where people reject the idea that they have to accept what happened to them as something that they can't change. I had so many guys who I talked to and they were like, I knew my, I talked to my public defender for 10 minutes before we went into the trial. And then the ruling came back in a couple hours. Like it just happened so quickly because we know public defenders don't have the capacity that they need to give these cases adequate attention. And so they were like, you know, a quote from one guy, he says, I realized that I couldn't expect anybody to fight harder for me than I was going to fight for myself. So I taught, I went to the law library. I taught myself how to read. I taught myself how to read these books. And in the process of doing so, I was able to advocate for other people's cases. I was able to appeal my own case. It just gives people a reason to wake up because there are enough examples of folks who did get their sentence overturned. There are enough examples of people who did have their sentence commuted. There are enough examples of cases that made it so that once mandatory sentences were no longer mandatory. And these are the things that that made it so that folks were like, I got to keep pushing. And that's where the title comes from, because that was a quote from one of my participants, which was reflective of a larger sentiment. They're just like, what if they open that door one day? I don't know when it will be, but I want to be ready when that happens. You bring up commutation. Is there a relationship between uh, either access to education in prison or taking advantage of education in prison and commutation rates? My population that I studied is are specifically folks who are sentenced to mandatory life without parole as kids. So what is the case is that people who receive commutations are often those who either there is some sort of new evidence or new important detail that comes up in the case that puts into question the sentence and the charges that were brought and the person was convicted of previously, or it is somebody who is kind of gone above and beyond and someone who has used their time in prison as a quote-unquote model prison citizen. They're often people who've gotten the top degrees. They're people who started programming. They're people who mentored other young people in the prison. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying that those should be the requirements for somebody to have their sentence commuted. I think those are often the requirements made necessary by the governors because nobody wants a, a Willie Horton moment, right? Nobody wants a thing where they are responsible for releasing someone who then goes and commits harm against people because there's a perceived political risk in doing so. And I think that that fear, and there are different examples of Willie Horton phenomena in specific states that I think have made it so that people are increasingly wary of releasing the one person. You could release a thousand people who all go do the right thing, but if you release one person who goes and commits harm against someone, then politicians fear that that's the only person that folks will remember and that they will be punished for that. So there's that case with regard to commutations, but I think also it's especially difficult for a lot of the folks that I was working with because people who are serving life sentences are often the last to be offered 
especially formal educational opportunities, right? Because so much of the framework about prison education is based on reducing recidivism, right? Like well, we, there's a 2013 RAND study uh, that's often cited and it's kind of the best meta-analysis we have. And it shows that people who participate in correctional education programs are 43% less likely to recidivate than those who do not. And that people who participate in these correctional educational programs have a 13% higher chance for employment after they get out than those who have not taken into account. And I think there's a lot to be said about how the post-employment numbers would be higher if not for the profound job discrimination that exists in the workplace. And Diva Pedra and others have, have written extensively about that. But people sentenced to life, there's no notion of like recidivism with them because they're told they're going to die in prison. Oftentimes, there's less focus on giving them the opportunities to participate in these educational programs because people think, well, they don't need it, right? Like they're not going to be able to get out of prison to make something better of their lives. So we need to give it to the people who have a chance of getting out so that it can be understood to be most useful. But part of what I argue in the dissertation is that that's a very narrow and misguided framework with which to think about what the purpose of education is, right? Like there's so many reasons to provide education for people who are serving life sentences. One, and first and foremost, it's morally and ethically the right thing to do, right? Education should be understood as it is by the United Nations as a human right, regardless of whether you're incarcerated or not incarcerated. And also, you know, just in a more material way, like people who participate in prison education programs, there's a correlation with a reduction in violence. And that's not even just for the specific person, but the more educational programs that are offered and the more people they offer them to in prisons and incarcerated settings, those prisons are often safer than the places that don't, which intuitively makes sense because if you have people who have things to do, who have things to work toward, who have programming to look forward to, rather than sitting in their, their cell all day or, or going to the yard. I mean, prison is a place that is predicated on stripping people of their social, physical, and intellectual agency. And what education does, both in its formal, informal, and independent context, is I think give people an opportunity to reclaim some semblance of agency for themselves and to feel a sense of control over their lives again when so much control has been taken away. These educational programs, like college courses, should not be offered and contingent upon whether or not someone is going to be released in the next five years or whether somebody is going to be released at all, but it should be offered to folks who anyone who, who wants to take it. One of the things you also talked about is a section that I loved, uh, the paradox of solitary as a space of community. And you talk about Victor and sort of go on to talk about Lionel and, and, and some of the other stories that are in this. And you end, I'll just read the part that you end so you can sort of work us backwards. You end by saying, as mentioned above, while some of my participants articulated certain benefits from their time in solitary confinement, solitary confinement should not be understood as a positive. Before that, though, one of the things that really struck me is that you essentially highlight the ways that people sort of have these innate abilities to organize and like support each other. And, and I was like, oh, look at that. I'm like, that was that was like such a brilliant organizing strategy or such a way to not let people strip your humanity. Can you help us understand like what those things were and what you learned in writing this chapter? Solitary confinement is torture, right? It is described as torture by the United Nations, who says that being in solitary confinement for more than 15 days constitutes as torture because it is prolonged and excessive. And I was talking to folks who have been in solitary confinement. Some had spent nearly a decade in solitary confinement, right? Much less 15 days. And so I wanted to be clear 
and sort of qualify this analysis in the in the sense that like solitary confinement is a bad place to be but what is most remarkable to me is that in the midst of this profound violence that exists in solitary and the way that it can cause you to quite literally lose your mind is that the folks in here created a community centered on learning centered on self-improvement centered on a bettering of oneself and a desire to create a new set of possibilities for their lives in the context of this really dehumanizing space. Also, I'll read a quote from one of my participants that I think really embodies the way that the community constructed itself. So this section is uh, about a guy named Lionel, and Lionel is someone who was functionally illiterate, did not know how to read, and struggled beginning in elementary school, right? He was in special education courses, had learning disabilities. And he talks about being in his cell in solitary confinement. And there's a person in the cell next to him, but he can't see him, right? Because solitary confinement kind of strips you of the ability to see anything outside of your cell, but he can hear him. And he established this routine with this guy who basically taught him how to read. And this is how he describes it. He would spell the words out, Lionel said. He would spell the word cat, but separate. He would have me look it up, what it means, repeat it back to him. You had a dictionary with you? I asked. Yeah. And the next morning he would get up and just holler the word cat and I would give him the meaning of it and he would holler spell it and I would spell it. And that's how I learned to read. And I asked Lionel after that, I was like, well, how did you manage to maintain a sense of sanity in the midst of a social setting that can like quite literally cause psychological breakdowns? And he said this, I always tell people, if you let it drive you crazy, it'll drive you crazy. I'd be lying to you if I say many times I thought I wasn't crazy. You talk to yourself, you start laughing to your own crazy jokes, but pretty much the old dude, me and him, we held it together because every morning we had a routine. I used to be getting words from this guy. When I left the cell, it was full of words on the wall. I had no paper. We used to write with cigarette ashes, take toilet tissue, roll it up, take the tobacco ashes, wet it, and just start writing because we weren't allowed to have pencils in the hole. And so part of what I think is embodied here is just one way in which there was this remarkable innovation and ingenuity that should never be necessary in the first place, right? Like you shouldn't have to use cigarette ashes to write on and toilet paper to to write words on the wall because you weren't allowed to have a pencil. But people are not given any sort of resources with which to engage their own minds while they're in these spaces, uh, which leads to this sort of psychological breakdown. And I think that there are so many different examples that I saw from people who were in solitary confinement where they built a community of people who sometimes they never even met. Like Lionel never met the person who was teaching him how to read. Like he never saw his face. Really? Never saw his face. Wow. But he credits that after this Lionel went on, he got a GED. Afterwards he got, and he became again, a quote unquote model prisoner and is embodied by the fact that a judge deemed him worthy of being released after spending more than three decades in prison. So it is important to consider the ways that because so many of these people have been prevented from even having access to these formal educational opportunities. And that, you know, part of what I talk about in the earlier part of the dissertation, which I think is really important, is that not only am I analyzing what's happening in the prison itself with regard to education, but I argue that before we can understand what's happening in the sort of educational infrastructure of the prison itself, 
we have to understand the ways that education largely failed so many of these people before they ever got to prison in the first place. And, you know, you don't just show up to prison not knowing how to read because you had a great primary educational experience. And that experience in and of itself is informed by trauma. And that trauma is informed by growing up in a community saturated with poverty and violence. And that poverty and violence that you experience is a result of the fact that these communities have been under-resourced and plundered and were made into pockets of hyper-segregated neighborhoods where there was limited opportunity for upward mobility. I mean, we know it's the story we all know so well, but in order to understand how they're thinking about education or how they even begin to approach education while they're on the inside, I think is really important, especially someone who's trained as a sociologist, to consider the sort of larger historical and social context that failed these young men and women uh, before they ever showed up in prison in the first place. Uh, Clint, where can people go to stay in touch with what you're doing? So on Twitter, on Instagram, my website, it's all Clint Smith III, Clint Smith, as DeRay would say, I, I, I. And you can stay up to date with my work when the next book is available for pre-order, uh, what projects. I got some cool projects coming up uh, in the next couple months. And yeah, I hope you will stay tuned. Boom. Thank you, Clint. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style and you'll find the best mattress for you at ashley the new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.